So I'm just going to uh, introduce, uh, very happy to introduce Isabella Kaminsky to uh, to you all. Kaminska, I'm sorry. Uh, who is an, uh, an ex-editor uh, at the one of my favorite finance blogs, which was from the Finnish Times, the Finnish Times Alphaville blog. And she also happens to know a lot about money, central banks, and financial journalism in general. And now she's starting, I saw she was starting this new initiative, The Blind Spot. Uh, I just posted a link in the chat as well, which is about independent journalism. And so I really wanted to talk to her about this and about the media landscape. And then I think we definitely should also talk a little bit about uh, what's going on, what <laughs> the biggest news story uh, there is at the moment, I think. So I'm, I'm just going to check in the chat. So, Isabella, welcome to the Money and Macro channel. Did I introduce you properly? Yes, that sounds fantastic. Um, I'm very flattered by that nice introduction. Thank you very much. Excellent. So shall we dive um, right into it? Shall we? So oh, just for the for the audience as well. So my idea for this is a live chat. So definitely there will also be some Q&A moments. So just um, my idea is to talk to Isabella and then at some point... When we've exhausted a subject, we're going to uh, just have a little break, have a look at the chat and see what you all are asking and saying. And then uh, we'll respond to that or answer questions. It will probably mostly be Isabella since uh, she is the guest of honor. So uh, Isabella, I was wondering, so this was the main question was that was on my mind when I saw you tweet about this, about your new initiative of independent journalism. And so my question was immediately, why? Like, what, what's wrong with uh, FT Alphaville? Why do we need you to be independent? So, I mean, there's own, uh, you know, I, I, I've left the FT um, uh, in a, with what I would say, good relations, because I'm still doing a few pieces for them uh, every now and then as a freelancer. But um, I think for... This is a wider problem than just the FT. I think the nature of Alphaville. So Alphaville was, um, you know, of its era. I think it was. It was a time when it when it was in its peak heyday. Kind of, you know, we didn't worry about copyright. We would we were blogging like you know re, in a very reactionary way. It, the whole point of blogging was that it was rough. It was uh, reactive. It sometimes we didn't get stuff right. There were typos. It was we edited each other's work and the idea was to get stuff out there and it was to differentiate from the core product which you know is a totally different beast mm-hmm. um it's journalism what we were doing but it was in a new framework right and i think what's happened is that as blogging's become more established it's become professionalized so the in the early days it was very easy to be forgiving about um some of the kind of knee-jerk stuff we were doing and and I think it had it always added value um even when we made mistakes because I think a lot of this time we were being reactionary uh in the style of markets when when we're trying to learn and see new things and we're kind of scouting the internet and doing that OSINT sort of uh stuff where we're like hey this really matters and blah 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 and just trying to pull information and and um aggregate things as much as uh, give analysis and insight But as things formalized, um, being a little scatty like that was less and less uh, easy to get away with. There was a different expectation. And I think we, you know, bureaucratic and commercial forces um, integrated Alphaville increasingly into the core of the FT. 
and the uh, differentiation as an independent platform was lost to a certain degree. And that meant that people who went off the tribe and stumbled onto our content often didn't understand that it was a more speculative, not speculative, but like more, you know, you had, it wasn't the finished product of the FT to the mm-hmm. same degree. You, you know, the, the community was, it was conversational. The whole point was that it was personality driven. It was, you know, you know, my, my writing, I'm not a great writer. I'm, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a really bad writer, actually. I'm, I'm dyslexic and, and I make typos and I'm just, you know, I'm more about the ideas and, and picking up good ideas and stories and speaking to people and, and pinpointing interesting sort of developments that maybe are being missed by the markets. So that's what I do best. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I don't operate as well in a more formal structure. That's just my own personal inclination, right? Mm-hmm. And people are very forgiving about my weaknesses, but I think it became increasingly difficult to do that sort of stuff in the new era in the FT where everything is far more, you know, it's always been professional, don't get me wrong, but like Alphaville became consumed by the core. It was a centralization sort of thing. And, um, and the appetite for, for the sort of risky stuff we used to do and the reactive stuff. And also very importantly, I think the cross beat stuff, there just wasn't that appetite anymore. So um, what's the cross beat stuff? If I, if I may, so I think one of the early in the early days of Alphaville, you mm-hmm. know, we were our own little segment. We were in the FT, but we were we were also kind of overlooked. We had a much higher reputation externally than we did internally. Internally, people were like, "Who are these like weird kids on the internet?" Um, this was like before anyone was on Twitter. Like people would be like, "What well, Twitter is like insignificant nonsense," <laughs> and you know, we were all on Twitter from the very early days and um, working away. And we had no limits because we were our own thing and people didn't really consider us a rival internally because we were Mm -hmm. so low on the spectrum of of internal respect. We were right at the bottom, right? So people didn't see us as a as 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 a not a threat is maybe the wrong word, as a challenger to their beats, right? So we could easily write about any topic. But as we became as our profile went up, I think it became harder to just sort of intrude into other sector into other sectors and have a, a different opinion because Alphaville's whole point is that we're kind of like an FT hedge. So if the FT is saying this, we would sometimes experiment with different opinions and, and, and work at things from a different perspective because I think that's the, you know, that's my personal philosophy as well is that I think you have to look at things from all sorts of different perspectives. And um, as we matured, this became more problematic and I totally understand why like beat reporters would be annoyed when Alphaville's coming in and saying you know chasing their own the same contacts and then then delivering a different conclusion to what they're saying right Mm -hmm. it it can get annoying so we're like an internal sort of personality like uh, deficiency within the FT or an anti-FT right right and um I think in that sense after a while, we became increasingly constrained and we looked at topics that were being missed by sector reporters. So often we ended up doing stuff in between the lines, whether it was fintech was a good example because the fin- financial reporters kind of thought it was a tech story. The tech reporters thought it was a finance story. So nobody was really doing it properly. And then Alphaville was there and we picked it all up. It was all very nice, low-hanging fruit for, for us. But um, those sort of cross-sector things become more complicated. And I definitely felt that 
there was a story I thought my 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 inclination around this time last year was that the story was evolving into a sort of global World War Three thing. At the time, like this time last year, this, this time last was year, not this was very okay. taboo. Like yeah. you couldn't really say that sort of stuff. So what's but happening? I, you know, what's happening today? Basically, is what you what you mean? Yeah, then? and I felt you know. So this is when I originally kind of realized that I don't think the sort of reporting I want to do is going to be easy to do in the structure of a very formal organization. So I think the polymath journalist is sort of about to really be, um, you know, incredibly valued at, in, in the current environment because you need someone who knows about finance, about... I'm not a military tactical person at all, but mm. I, I am interested in it and I follow it enough to have some insight and I want to learn with my readers. And I, it's like with epidemiology, like when the markets didn't really, no one really knew about epidemiology, but, but markets now do. We had to learn as the story evolved. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of positioning myself for this new era that I think is coming. And um, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to compete with like, well, it would be very difficult and controversial and very <laughs> cumbersome to kind of talk about y- Ukraine. I think internally, you can't cross politics and markets and sort of, you know, very reactionary or, or, or um, I say reactionary in a sort of market reactionary way, coverage at the FT very easily because it's, everything is now very politicized and you have to be very careful. So your independence, but you can't also at the same time give quality coverage unless you're prepared to take a risk and take, take a few sort of, um, you know, speculative punts every now and then. So I just wanted to to ask like clarifying question because you mentioned, so I was, no, no, what I'm doing is more like looking for an example because what you, you're talking about is that, okay, so you can't break every story as easily or perhaps not in the shape that, that you want, especially not when it comes to geopolitics. But then also you mentioned, which which I think is is very interesting because I did not pick up on that at all last year. You said, okay, I, I already saw this sort of World War Three narrative last year. So, so my question really is like, what were the signals last year that that, that you picked up, um, and then maybe as a follow up, uh, what couldn't you write about it? Like, what did they say? Um, well, I think you know one of the early things that I was interested in was the lab leak theory, for example, and I found that to be the entire media response to that narrative, I found very confusing mm-hmm. because it seemed a credible theory for me uh, from very early on. And I thought there was enough evidence and public domain evidence to, at a minimum, to warrant an investigation to see if there's anything in it. And there seemed to be a terrible taboo and stigma with raising this. And unless you're in a position of authority or within a remit where you can raise these sort of topics in editorial, you know, environments. And most people aren't in that position because they seem, you know, I was editor of Alphaville, but even for me saying, I think we should do this story, it seems like you're putting it yourself out there because the risk is someone deems you a conspiracy theorist mm-hmm. and um, and you end up kind of, compromising yourself internally and and your own reputation. So I felt kind of frustrated. So I started making my own inquiries just because I found the story interesting. 
And around February last year, I think, I, w- I became quite convinced that there was a story there at a minimum that we had to cover. Long story short, there was a bit of resistance in following it up. And then eventually by Ma- by sort of May, it became clear that this was a legitimate avenue of inquiry. And I was put on the story, which is great. But I found it very frustrating um, how the story was being managed and how we could cooperate or not cooperate. And I felt, you know, so the reason I'm telling this story is that it was in the process of thinking about these issues and the aftermath and the consequences and the um, the geopolitics related to China and and also to Russia's role within those geopolitics that made me realize quite early on that there was going to be an aftermath and that, that that aftermath did not look like it was going to be a good aftermath. So my inclination was, you know, that combined with the economic fragility that we were facing and the, um, again, I was, I was very concerned about inflation very early on. And that was another taboo subject, I feel, in, in certain serious corners mm, because yeah. it is such a um it is it is such a sort of you know bitcoin a narrative or whatever um yeah, but you know when, when right the facts change you have to change your mind yeah mm-hmm. and and i i felt like that was impeding sensible journalism because there was such a fear of being branded x or y I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like, you know, lots of people might have had different reasons for not thinking um, uh, there was going to be inflation, but I just felt there was a lot of stigma and a lot of pressure. And when I, when I did try to go out there, because before when Alphaville would, would go a bit out there with different theories, which did end up being true in the long run, um, the resistance was usually external. And, and when, when it became sort of more internal, it felt, it felt a little bit frustrating because you, you feel like, a newspaper should be the sort of place where you can uh, tolerate different perspectives. And if, as long as the argument is well, argue, you know, as long as the logic is well argued, I think it's fair. You know, I, I entertained on Alphaville many different perspectives. I didn't necess- necessarily agree with myself, mm-hmm. as long as they were well argued and presented in a convincing and uh, credible way. I think it was fair enough. So, um that's the context. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. But, so what I find yeah. very interesting about this already is that sort of I actually had a little bit of a similar experience uh, in academia in the sense that I always thought like, okay, academia, universities, that's the place where you can entertain new ideas, right? New radical ideas in economics in my case, because I'm an economist. And then I found out like as a PhD student that that's that's really not the case because then you don't get published uh, and and there's there's actually very strong gatekeeping and a pretty strong communal narrative i don't know if you can say that but like common narrative if you stray outside of that and and that's actually partially what motivated me what, yeah motivated me to move from uh, university to to youtube so i i see some uh, some parallels there but I do wonder what you think, because what you or what you mentioned now, is, as I uh, heard at least, is very much sort of why you wanted to move to independent journalism. But I'm also quite interested in why uh, the world, just to put it bluntly, I'm, I don't mean this, this negatively, <laughs> needs your independent journalism, if you catch my drift. Well, I, I think I, I think it's interesting that you, fe- you felt similar in academia. I mean... I think there is a broader problem um, related to sort of bureaucracy and, and commercial forces and, and 
and funding and <laughs> and a sort of um, specialist situation as well, where people who are not specialists fear, fear they can't criticize specialists and everyone's becoming more and more of a specialist, right? So this kind of constrains critical thinking and it constrains debate. And, you know, in the beginning, I think I was happy to, I think it's important to, to, to operate within a structure that can criticize your own work, right? Because now that I'm independent, I think what I really miss about being in a more formal structure is feedback and being, you know, I often would would joke to my colleagues that they often save me from myself because, you know, everyone has inclinations that, you know, you want to write something immediately. And then when you sleep on it, you're like, oh, no, actually, I shouldn't have written. I'm, I'm going to. Yeah, I'm glad I reflected and I didn't do that. Um, when you're independent, you're in your own bubble and, and you don't have that sort of check on yourself. Um, so I do miss, I think, border colleagues. But that's why the blind spot hopefully won't just be me. I, um, I'm very keen to recruit as soon as I can, as soon as the cash flow allows. I want to broaden it out and and have more team members with different perspectives um, to me, but all of them, I think the, the common denominator will be that I'm looking for people who are creative thinkers and who who bring something really quite unique to the table, not necessarily aligned with my thinking, but I think it's important to look creatively at a lot of different things that are going on today. Um, and I feel that there is a fear to do so sometimes because the status quo is so entrenched and there is such a stigma associated with appearing to challenge it that it just doesn't get challenged. So, yeah, that, that sounds sounds good. Um, but it, it didn't entirely answer my question. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I was wondering, so maybe I can answer it for you and then you can just say that I'm wrong or, or not. But um, so how I see this is a, because I've, I find it very um, interesting when you said like, OK, we, when we started this blog, FT Alphaville, which, by the way, for those who don't know it, is, is still a great uh, blog. And I think it's free. It used to be free, uh, if you, you, but you just had to register. I'm not, is that still the case, by the way? It was when I left. OK, I don't, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure about what's <laughs> happened since. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But because I, I read it, I started reading it, I think, around... 2010 or something like that and I do remember that that like when you were talking about it I, I was like ah oh, it is uh true that I became less interested in it um, or at least that I found myself less able to differentiate it from the financial times because I also love just reading the financial times and that sort of more memorable stories were published uh in those early days so so that did resonate with me so and then I it totally I think it makes total sense that you like you sound like a little bit, and again, tell me if it's not true, but you sound like a, a little bit like a contrarian uh, in the sense that you seem to be excited by sort of controversial stories and, and breaking them. So that, that sounds like an excellent move in that sense. But I was also thinking about what, why I am excited that you're going to do this, because what I think you might bring is still that journalistic um, rigor to, because there is also a very big part of independent media, there is a lot of independent media, I think. And for example, one reason for me to get into YouTube is also the other side. And that is like, oh my God, the stories on YouTube are wild. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, you mentioned uh, you, sh you shouldn't be branded a conspiracy theorist too easily. And I totally agree. But then again, there is a sea of conspiracy theories out there. Um, and so maybe 
uh, what you can bring or why, what I'm hoping to get from the blind spot is as well is like, yeah, the controversial stories, but with the journalistic yes, rigor. 100%. I totally agree. And that's why I'm very, I'm very keen to stress that my vision for the blind spot is also about credit and value centered journalism. And it's about what is value centered um, journalism? So. Yes, it's, it's just a concept I've created. But like oh. the, the, the idea is that in independent journalism, you have to be value led um, and you have to live transparently by those values. I think there are two parts of value driven uh, journalism. The, the legacy is obviously the different newspapers and media offerings, which are value centered as far as the customers are concerned. But the reality is, is that the masthead values are often not shared by the employees because the nature of journalism is so competitive that the recruitment side of it, you're not necessarily hiring individuals who are aligned with the values of the paper. You're hiring people who want to get a job in journalism and, Mm -hmm. you know, they might mask their true political values or they might mask that, you know, they they won't necessarily be adherents of, of, of the masthead. So you will get, you know, a lot of people getting jobs at the Wall Street Journal who maybe don't really want to be capitalists or whatever. I don't know, you know, or at the Guardian who was, you know, different way inclined. So there's a mismatch between the writers and the masthead values. And that never used to be a problem in the old days because there was a very strong hierarchy. And I think there was a, a norm that ensured that you the values of the of the paper had to be fundamentally aligned with no matter what but i think in recent years that has changed due to the power of networks and the power of like community organization within journalistic and other corporate structures where people are aligning according to their real values and trying to kind of change the values of the paper from the inside and that is one of the phenomena that I think is bad for readers because readers are still buying the FT or the Wall Street Journal for what they perceive the open, transparent values to be. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily buying it to be campaigned, you know, in a different way or or for a different agenda to be thrown at them, right? Do you mean then like that a political narratives or political camps are sort of taking over these media outlets? Like how... I don't know, uh, perhaps a left-wing group might take over uh, The Guardian and a right-wing uh, group, you know, might take over, I don't know, like Fox News or so. Well, even if well, I don't the know other if they had to take it. it over, but like, is that, that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. So basically, I think there is like the, the, the new generation of younger reporters, I don't think are happy to settle for, for the values of the organization they join. They want to change them. They're like women who want to change men when they marry them. <laughs> That's what I say. You know, they marry them for X and they're like, no, well, you know, don't worry, I'll work on him. And he'll, by the time I'm finished with him, he'll be exactly how I uh, intend him to be. So I feel that's kind of what's going on. And to that degree, I don't think that's very transparent with readers. And mm. I think you have to be honest with with what who you are and what you are. Now, so, you know, within a can I within a liberal newspaper, that's fine. Yeah. If you, you know, I think the FT, you know, historically is a pro business, pro finance paper that is going to entertain all sorts of different perspectives because markets um, don't discriminate, and you need to see the big picture. You need to understand all perspectives to get 
the clearing price of any product, right? Or mm-hmm. any share price or any asset. So that's why when when people kind of freeze out different opinions, I don't think that's good for markets. So in the blind spot, I'm very, I want to be very transparent about my own biases so people know. I don't think bias is a problem. I think actually it's impossible in the modern media system to not have a bias. You just have to be transparent about your bias and mm. also transparent about how you want to correct for your bias, maybe. So, so, so what are your biases um, then, uh, Isabella? My biases, mm-hmm. my biases are that, I mean, the, the obvious one is that I, you know, who I am, which is that I'm a West London, um, Polish heritage, po- po- yeah, English woman who is in her 40s that's obviously going to give me one perspective but politically you know I see myself as like the archetypal flip-flopper who is um the sort of person who's always going to be waiting to be convinced by a narrative so I try to not make assumptions and I tend to counterbalance things so in my broad political history you know I've I've dabbled with all sorts of perspectives so I I find myself quite hard to pigeonhole in some ways but I can tell you that right now you know I feel you know I'm not I I tend to go through phases in my writing so I had a tech utopian phase then I was had a very cynical phase now I'm in a sort of trying to push back against some of the consensus that is out there and I think it's very important to push push forward with free speech. I'm not a free speech maximalist because I do actually believe there are important constraints on speech, mm-hmm. but I think it's gone too far the other too far in one way and so um but at the same time as you were saying value-centered journalism is also about rigor and making sure that it's not just about oh well you mustn't ignore things and then therefore you uh, consume all this crap that's on the internet. It's about being able to differentiate, but it's also about not being scared to look um, at certain things from that sort of banned area and think, well, actually, this thing that's there, that's, that's actually truthful. Like, we can pluck that because they've got a point on that. You can't... <laughs> so it's about being able to differentiate and to not... Um, you know, a lot of the disinfo that's out there, and my view generally on disinfo is that it's everywhere. I don't think it's of the left or of the right only. I think... Everyone, I think the entire system has become consumed by disinfo, not just because of the political disinfo and the state-sponsored disinfo, but but because of the corporate practices out there to bury bad news, to talk, like just the corporate and PR spin alone has polluted the information space as well. So as a journalist Mm. on the front line, you are continuously, you know, you have to be on guard because you are continuously being um, bombarded with spin one way or the other. So yeah, that's my general perspective about value-centered journalism is that you have to do your homework and you have to be transparent when you don't know something and you have to be transparent about when you speculate about things amongst other things. And as long as yeah. you're transparent about it, I think that's okay. Yeah, I, I think I think that 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 I broadly agree with a lot of that. Like for example, you know, being on YouTube and, and publishing my own stories, I I do take sides sometimes or I do put my own spin on a story but I like one of my core values is to always publish all the sources in link in text so that people really can make up their mind um, about my my biases for example and what I also try to do in in more the more controversial videos is like feature the best counterpoints to my points because I think I think that's this is really important and it's it's like lacking a little bit 
But I think what we should do actually is, is, is answer a couple of audience uh, questions. But before doing that, I had this very burning question that I wanted to ask you because you are a bit of an insider in the, in the journalism industry and mainly, I guess, like the, the economic uh, outlets. But I, because you were basically implying that sort of certain political camps or certain agendas are taking over certain media or corporate media outlets. So I was wondering, like, who is who's taking over then the Financial Times, um, and what do you, and what do you and who has taken over sort of the other media outlets like Wall Street Journal, Economist? Like, what's what's how how would you describe that landscape? I mean, it's not like I wouldn't describe it as some sort of like political group or party. I think it's a, I think it's more of a a movement or a youth movement, really, um, that is focused on. Forwarding. So, so back in the day, like obviously, the, the you, journalists were always part of unions. We had the National Union, you know, of journalists as a thing. But those unions were usually focused on forwarding the interests of journalists from a commercial, like from a simple kind of like let's make sure they're paid properly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unionized to get a better deal and treat. You know, yes, treatment and blah blah blah. But mostly, it was to do with how you were treated as a journalist. Whereas I think now. A lot more where organizations focus not just on like the treatment of journalists, they're focused on the content within the, the journalistic houses. So if 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 there is a story that upsets any particular internal group, they will lobby for that for that story to be um, deprioritized, or they will lobby to to have some input when, on on that particular subject area, right? Because they feel that you know we shouldn't be platforming X, Y, or Z, or you know. So there's a, I think there is a bit of a schism inside um, you know many journalistic outfits regarding these platforming issues, and and the old school mentality really is that. Platforming doesn't mean endorsement. It means challenging someone. It means understanding who they are. It, it, it's, it's about telling the story and often pushing back against what they're saying if they're saying nonsense, right? It's about entering into the spirit of debate and being aware of these pockets of, you know, even in, even when it comes to extremist situations, like you want to be able to, inter- you know, Lionel Barber interviewed Vladimir Putin, right? That yeah. is, we platform Vladimir of the Putin. the FT, right? Okay? Is, is Lionel Barber. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the former editor, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that is not seen as a bad thing in journalism, never used to be. Mm-hmm. But these days, I think any, I mean, there is a, there is this like strange, you know, I find it quite absurd that we can't platform certain like rogue operators, but we can others. And the FT hasn't been as bad as, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the FT because obviously I, I still think it's one of the best papers in the world. Mm -hmm. And I still think it has um, incredibly sound practices. And I don't think what is happening to the FT is unique to the FT. I think it's a broader thing. And perhaps the FT is a bit bit more uh, resistant to it, actually, than other areas. But it is still happening. So, but who is, I'm I'm still looking a little bit for the juicy details, though, uh, Isabella. Like, who who is not giving a platform, for example, and, and who is perhaps being given uh, too much of a platform or is, is that the wrong way to well, say Well, I think there are some well-known <laughs> stories that got that were recently, you know, criticized. <laughs> you know, I, I think if anyone writes about anything controversial, they will get internal kind of pushback, whether it's about renewables or whether it's, you know, 
stories about uh, nuclear or whether it's stories about trans or whether it's stories about, you know, Muslims in France. I mean, these are just a, a number of stories that have had internal pushback, right? So, so, the, so you mean um, then, just to, to give a little bit of perspective for, for everybody watching, so you mean like, for example, oh, nuclear may be good or we can ask questions about the trans movement. Um, is, is that sort of the angles that are, that are being pushed back against? I mean, the, the, that issue isn't like a dominant one at the <clears throat> FT for obvious reasons because mm-hmm. it's not something that is paramount to markets and finance. But yeah. I do think there is a general, you know, the lab leak story is one story that got, I think, unfairly sidelined. But that Mm. wasn't because of internal pushback. That was, I think, more because of stigma and fear. But yeah, I think if there is a sort of, I mean, I am pro-market, I'm pro-capitalism in the old school sense of not crony capitalism. I'm uh, pro-liberal democracy and all that, right? That's Mm -hmm. my position. Mm -hmm. But I do think that some of that is being challenged internally and there is a... There is a um, a growing kind of inclination to to lean on the more well, you know I would I don't know if it's leftist but like it, it's um I I I'm actually I don't think the old I don't actually think left and right really is a fair descriptor these days of the of the big like the big split in society I think it's more about pro state pro government pro centralization versus more decentralization more kind of self-autonomous, libertarian. That's, I think, the the, the split these days. Um, and one tribe really resents and, and looks down on the other tribe. And they're both, I sit somewhere in the middle and I see the virtues and the um, downsides of both. And, the, the, uh, and the I think that's why for me... Tribe is sorry? strong. The centralization tribe is, is pretty strong at the FT these days then, right? Yeah, I, I would say so. I would and, think and, that but, it's very hard to operate um, nimbly. Mm-hmm. And but basically, at most media, big media outlets, right? Are there are there any media? I can outlets? only speak for the ones that I've I've experienced myself. But mm. yeah, right. Okay. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I would love to to get dive a little bit more into the specifics. But would would you um, have a look with well, me? Well, you know, what I, have, are saying? I don't want to. Um, you know, you've got to be you've got to be open to. You know, you've got to appreciate that I don't want to. You know, because I don't blame any particular person for what's going on. I, mm. I think it's a broader trend, right? And I think a lot of this stuff is unwitting and and. If 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 you were to speak to another journalist at the FT, they would probably completely agree. Yeah, it was Izzy's mad as well in her head. So I think I think mm. you you know there is no consensus on this. This is just my reading of the situation, mm. and I have to stress that it made me feel uncomfortable. But I come from a very unique background. I, I'm Polish. My parents were, you know, they experienced communism. They they experienced like an oppressed environment. They, ex, they experienced mass centralization and the inability to kind of, you know, operate independently. They, you know, that was my upbringing. So maybe I'm more tuned into these things than other people. I never used to be that tuned into that part of my history. But I think in recent years, I've come to really appreciate it. Because I think there is a sort of tendency to shut down challenging stories. And then, then there are other issues, which are just like legal liability issues. And that's, you know, one of the, re- you're asking me very specific questions. But, you know, as a journalist, I'm very aware of like 
libel and I'm very aware of um you know mm. how you what you can and cannot say without you know a load of evidence to back up what you're saying so you know to make an off the cuff remark is in public you know we were talking about journalism that that is done with rigor mm-hmm. and and you can't just make accusations without you know it's you need a right of reply it wouldn't be fair for me to make uh you know that's why i, d- I don't want to you're asking me asking very pointed questions but i i don't think it's it's fair for me to comment outside the other perspective being in the room as well so yeah. that's why i'm shying away from those questions fair <laughs> enough yeah fair enough i mean i that's perhaps a little bit because uh because i am uh, I, on youtube i i don't have any I don't have that many people uh, uh, checking my work uh, like in the similar spirit that you mentioned uh, earlier. That that might be helpful from time to time. What I will say is that ah. what I've personally noticed, and I think this is public domain, so it's not not an issue, mm-hmm. is that when you read the comments in the FT, I think there's a definite divide between those who sort of see it's still doing its job and they're very happy that it's become more of a campaigning newspaper and it's focused on, you know, the new agenda is its motto and, you know, that, you know, post-capitalism, not post-capitalism, you know, moral money and, and compassionate capitalism and all this other stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say like half of that community really goes for it, but there's another half that I can see is, you know, just from feedback, incredibly cynical about what's going on. And I, you know, and, and laments for the days when Alphaville was a little bit more risque. And I think I want to service those readers because I can see that they are being uh, left out. And I think there's also a tend, I mean, this is my impression and I could be wrong, but I feel that they feel like they're being patronized a little bit by for their sure. newspaper. Yeah. And I don't think um, that is a good sort of relationship to have with your readers. And, you know, whether there is a perspective or not that like a lot of the readers are old dinosaurs that are outdated and should be, you know, city people, you know, the old mm. city t- stereotype. And, you know, but at the end of the day, that they're, they're the people that pay your salary. So it's like, Telling them they're they're awful, horrible people all the time is is not constructive. I don't think. Yeah. No. Well, to to maybe I can give a, a small example myself as well, and then I, I will definitely move to the comments. I know I promised it multiple times already, um, but I, I see it with the inflation story as well, um, where I am actually going in a little bit, sort of um, on the uh they they would say i think dovish side uh because i am in a different world i'm in in youtube space where the the other the the sort of oh hyperinflation is coming uh, narrative is extremely strong but what i also see is that at um the more established outlets they 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 don't want to address serious concerns about inflation for example right like that uh, for example um house prices are not in the inflation index People comment that quite often, uh, that it's ridiculous. Well, I, I do mm, push back then often in the sense that I say, well, but okay, but a house is a consumption asset and it's an investment asset. So there are reasons for this and it's not necessarily a big conspiracy. But I do um, try to at least shed light on the subject and to take it seriously because this is a very, this, for many people, it doesn't matter because their house prices are going up. They can no longer live in the city. So who cares? It's an investment asset. And so I do see that uh, many of the more sort of established corporate outlets, you know, then just totally go the other way. So, so I, 
I think there's then often the middle ground is lacking a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if this fits in. I would agree. Excellent. Well, well, that, then, and I think that's what, what I always aspire to do on Alphaville is just to be able. So I think people kind of confuse that sometimes I kind of try on a different hat to see things from a different perspective because I think that teaches you valuable insights about what's going on. And unless you have the capacity to see things from a different point of view, you you, you do. I mean, the cliche, you have a blind spot. And that doesn't necessarily mean that when I'm trying on this other hat, I necessarily agree with everything on that, on that position, right? Mm, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's more like, a, like when you focus a camera, you just want to see the different perspectives to get the optimal view. But there is a lot of like resistance, I think, these days to to trust just looking at things from a different perspective. Um, I think that, that one of the good examples of this is the BBC, which everybody seems to hate. Like whether you're on the left or you're on the right, like everybody seems to hate the BBC. And I, I, I too am critical of one thing about the BBC. I do, I do think over COVID they they really leaned into the kind of like terror. Um, side of things but so did all the other media and it was a very packed journalism thing but but that said my general take on the BBC is the fact that everyone hates them probably means they're doing the right thing because obviously that means they are looking at things from different perspectives and if everyone thinks that they're they're being discriminated against in favor of the other side well yeah. probably that's just them being very sensitive so I tend to defend the BBC on that front. All right. Hey, shall we have a look at the, the chat uh, and see what people uh, are asking or if they haven't done so? Maybe you want to ask some, um, some questions to, to Isabella. Can you see the, the chat? Um, yeah, someone's asked if, if someone would give me a bag of money and I didn't need to worry about income for the years to come, what topic would you spend your time on? Well, I think it's hard to predict, obviously, what topic. You know, I'm always fascinated in the financial plumbing and in payments and central banking, but also the big sweeping kind of market mechanism developments in the world. One of my hunches is that the, cor the corporation construct itself is going to be not because of Web3 or anything like that. I just think that um, we're going to re really rethink how a lot of the corporate value, you know, is is generated and, and this might deconstruct some elements of the corporation. Um, so those are areas I'm interested in. But also, I think, I personally don't think that this skirmish in Ukraine is just a, you know, fleeting thing. I think there's a, there's a bigger geopolitical pivot point happening. I think that we are on the verge of like the, um, you know, <laughs> To be, you know, it's the Thucydides trap coming to life. And I, I suspect there's going to be a period of probably at least three to four years of quite radical readjustment in global economics, supply chains and um, power relationships. It's going to make for an incredibly rich source of um, news and, you know, analysis i think it's gonna it's gonna be an absolutely insane thing to cover um and it's gonna be as broad as covering commodities to becoming an expert in certain sort of military tactics i think that there will be um you know i want to focus on the the sort of very niche um 
blind spots that the market in general hasn't necessarily picked up on. I think no one, so much information out there, no one can really um, process it all. And the job that I want to do on the blind spot is basically zoom in on those areas of expertise, like really unpack those little specialist areas as they come into the fore when they become relevant. Whether that's like learning about, you know, and, you know, ballistic missiles or whether it's about learning about epidemiology or chemicals, you know, warfare or or something more vanilla like, you know, infrastructure uh, and, and commodities, some sort of weird commodity markets. Um, I think that's what the blind spot wants to do. Like we, we want to navigate through this chaos and present spotlights for when things become relevant and they're not in the mainstream press. They're being overlooked because the mainstream press is being incredibly shouty about whatever the top line narrative is. Whereas I want to kind of focus on what's being buried in the other, you know, what's being buried in the news whilst everyone's looking here, you know, this is what's going on here. Mm. That's what I wanted. Uh, there's also this question that, that caught my eye, which is about how do you balance between contrarianism and and conspiracy uh, by Noah Gores, and he's he's mentioning the example of Richard Werner, who's a professor. I'm, I'm, I think you might know, but I'm not sure. Tell me if, if that's I the actually, case. Somebody keeps telling me about him, but I've, I've not actually looked at his stuff. So he's written I this book, Princess to... of the Yen. Uh, have you heard of that one? It's about What's his the... theory. I don't. I'm actually not familiar with his theory. Mm. Um, someone does keep telling me I should look at it, and I haven't yet. So, so. It's, it's very much about like banks create money and debt, um, and then he he's written extensively about Japan. It it it, it has actually influenced my thinking uh, quite a bit, but um, about the, the 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 bust of Japan at, at the end of the 80s. Um, but he is then taking it very much into the sort of, um, in my opinion, conspiracy side. Um, where he's like saying uh, this was sort of a planned mastermind planned by the Japanese central bankers to to push neoliberalism on the country by force, but also like um, as Noah in the, in the chat is, is mentioning, he's he now apparently has a rather extreme take on vaccines, and I remember as well like uh, checking out his Twitter feed, um, a lot of chemtrail uh, related uh, messages. Uh, but okay, I, I guess the point of the question is more like, uh, do you see that um, sort of uh, conflict between contrarianism and conspiracy? And how do you deal with it? Well, I, I'm I'm really like, yeah, so I'm really cynical about, look, first of all, I just think these days it's impossible to do good investigative journalist, journalism because everything is a conspiracy theory. Like Wirecard is the best example of that. Like, frankly... Um, that was a criminal conspiracy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't a theory. It was just a conspiracy. Now, Dan McCrum and Paul Murphy, who covered that story, they were accused of the most preposterous things. That they, they were all making it up and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I find this like entire attitude of like, oh, no, no, this is a conspiracy theory. It, it obstructs real journalism. And the real journalism takes something like chemtrails, right? And like, okay, so somebody tells you this chemtrail. Okay, right. I don't know. I don't know anything about this topic, right? But my the, the journalistic process is, okay, someone tells you a tip. If it's interesting, if there's anything that suggests there's any supporting evidence, well, then you you look into it. And then, you, like Aaron Brockovich, you, you build a case, right? If there's some sort of pollution or whatever, blah, 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 you build a case, right? Mm -hmm. and, and And yes, you are you do tend to have a selective bias when you start doing that process. 
And that's why in a in in you know good journalistic practice, you go down the rabbit hole a little bit and then you pull back and then you go and speak to some people who might give you a different perspective. And you try to balance things out. But when the evidence starts to um, demonstrate that actually there is something to this, you don't constrain it because you of fear that you you might un, unfold a, a conspiracy. Conspiracies are real. Like there are conspiracies out there. Like mm-hmm. this idea that there are no conspiracies is silly, right? So I, what what I think has happened maybe is that conspiracy theory itself in the case of Wirecard was used as a way, I mean, it became a weapon in discrediting the journalist, right? So when, when, when a journalist is like pursuing a story and increasingly getting somewhere with it, you know, so often you're then like pushed back, you know, well, this is a conspiracy theory. You don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes that is true. And sometimes you are, you know, taking, you know, two and two and making 17, right? But other times, and no, oh my God, just in case any, 17 just came into my head. It's nothing to do with any of them. Just really. 17, I, I don't get um, the reference, to be honest. Two and two and because uh, we're talking about conspiracy theories and 17 is the cue. So I, that was, oh, okay. I didn't do it on purpose. Oh, man. <laughs> it, I didn't know about that. Okay. In case anyone like me. Um, but because I did a film about Q, QAnon, and so um, I know that, but that's that was an accident. <laughs> but se- I, does um, seventeen then mean that you're part of uh, the the Q side or or the other side, or or is it not like it that? Just, at all? It's just a reference. It's just Q is the seventeenth letter in the alphabet, so it's just a way of recognizing. Ah, okay. You know, it's it's like so. The, this is this is the bad side of conspiracy theory. So, so yeah. the problem with the QAnon is that they're not trained journalists. So they go out and they start looking like they look so, like at the internet and they scour everything and they go, well, this is this happened at this time. And because that person was in the same room as XYZ, that means they must be connected and therefore we've got a link and they are definitely in cahoots, right? That's how that's how QAnon thinks, right? And the, the reality is, is that sometimes people will be in the same room and blah, 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 and there's a picture of X with X and that means blah, blah, blah. And you can investigate it and then you can, but then you use your judgment and you go, well, there are lots of circumstances where someone might be in the same room, but they have absolutely nothing to do with that person, right? You know, and you can't just draw a conclusion because two, two people are in the same picture, right? So a journalist will, uh, uh, I would say someone with good, you know, who follows best practice wouldn't jump to the conclusion that that, that is definitely, um, you know, you have to maintain the idea that innocent until proven guilty. Like you've got to like make your case. You've got to get the, you've got to get more than circumstantial evidence. You've got to treat it like a, like a court case, right? Whereas the QAnons don't do that. They just like, they just take X and Y and they, they just presume, you know, that that means cabal, whatever. And that I think is the difference. And they also don't have access. So they don't like have the journalists take information, but they also then make calls and they speak to the people and they give, like if someone's been um, accused of X or Y, you know, we call them up and we hear their side of the story before we start spreading uh, malicious gossip about them. That's how it's supposed to act. That's how it's supposed to operate, right? Mm, And I think that's the difference between conspiracy theory and, and journalism is that journalism is verified. It's, you know, it can be speculative and you will have narratives and angles and biases. But by and large, you have you can't like make a ridiculous like accusation without 
hell of a lot of evidence behind what you're what you're suggesting. Yeah, but now, now, so I don't know this Werner guy, yeah. but if there is if there is evidence for what he, if there is enough evidence, this you know, but no smoke without fire, then at a minimum, this was my point with a lab leak. I felt there was enough evidence to to mm, merit yeah. an investigation, right? Yeah, and, yeah, I looked into it as well. Uh, yeah. they definitely had a good case. You know, you don't and that's know, what, but, and yeah. I felt that in that case, conspiracy theory had been weaponized to suppress the investigation. And I think mm. we have to be conscious of the fact that we shouldn't just knee jerk like, oh, well, X says this, or therefore it's a conspiracy theory, because conspiracy theory then becomes an obstacle to good journalism, yeah. and it becomes stigmatized to do any in- proper inquiries. One, one thing so I do there, wonder, and often, like you know, it's the whole, um, you know, sometimes. People, you know, you know what they say, they say little knowledge is dangerous. And I've seen that happen so many times with like central banking and Bitcoin and crypto. And these people like jump to wild conclusions and it's because they don't know the mechanics. Mm. And so they make assumptions that, you know, look, a classic one is like, you know, QE is money printing. Yeah. And uh, and I'd be like, no, it's an asset store, it's sterilized, it's not the same thing. And it's because of the climate. And then now, like so many years later, I look at that and I go, well, you know, I used to be really annoyed with them saying it's money printing because I'd be like, no, mechanically, it's blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, but they kind of had a point. Um, and maybe it's a bit basic and maybe they don't know why they've arrived at the right answer. Mm. But we were a bit snobbish in terms of just, you know, sometimes the basic intuitive gut feeling should also not be dismissed. So I've become a little bit more pra- open-minded and pragmatic. And I think sometimes... Um, there is so much, there are so many bad incentives out there for people to push bullshit at you that frankly, um, you know, being a bit inclined to think that people are using X or Y as a cover, it doesn't strike me. I mean, there's enough historical record of like crazy cover-ups and corporate malpractice to to resonate. I don't yeah. I don't see what's wrong with doing the investigation. And we don't even get to the investigation point this point at in this day and age. That's my point. If yeah. you do the investigation and then you conclude, well, there's nothing here, that's so, fine. So one thing that I will say on this, because um yeah, sadly you have another appointment, I think, in like two minutes. So I, I feel obliged Sorry. To, I feel sad to point it out, but I also feel obliged to do to do this uh, for you. One thing that I, I will I do want to say on it is that um, I wonder how you, uh, your, your perspective will change on this and maybe we can talk about it later at some point in half a year or something because it does uh, come across a little bit as though, I mean, you have been in an environment for so long where they've been pushing you hard back against this, using this weaponizing conspiracies, right? But now you're, I think, and <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're entering an arena of the independent journalists where you're going to compete with all the conspiracy people, maybe I shouldn't say it like that, but I, yeah, uh, and th- what what I find difficult, at least, when doing uh, trying to at least do do more background research, is that sort of when I do one properly researched story, the channels, the conspiracy channels, have have ten stories out. Do you see what I mean? So I wonder. Oh yeah, if, because hmm. doing a pro- doing all that stuff that I was talking about, all the verification and actually um, reporting things out takes time and energy. And that's what the money, you, that's why you, That's why journalism needs subscribers. That's why if it's free, you're the product. Mm. If it's free, like I'd be suspicious of all the stuff on the internet that's free 
because I mean, obviously advertising, but like there's an agenda behind it. And the fact that they can pump out X, Y, Z, it shows, you know, with limited resources is very suspicious, I think, because there's only so much bandwidth. So yes, I think to differentiate yourself as an independent journalist, that's why I am very keen to focus on on a feedback mechanism that can hold you to account to your own values. So if you're there saying, you know, I don't do access journalism and I don't do this and I always verify and I always get right, right a reply and I always, you know, blah, blah, blah. If there's evidence that you don't do that, there should be some sort of feedback or or um, kind of like a, a, a bounty to for people to to help you to help you keep your standards um, to the right level, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's what I hope to create with the blind spot is I want to create a very clear and transparent value and con- code of practice, and then sort of you know essentially give readers an incentive to like um if they can point out where I'm I'm failing my own code of conduct I'd like to 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 flag it and to to make sure that I am that there is a there is a sort of mechanism that can keep me in check because I think that is really important so I'm very much looking forward uh, to this uh, and and definitely just want to say again that people should um hopefully uh, subscribe to your YouTube channel get you to the 1000 followers because then you told me that you wanted to do quite a few uh, live activities uh, there as well, which are only possible after uh, a thousand subscribers. So please, uh, I'll, I'll post the link again uh, in the in the chat later on. And I will definitely stick around to answer some of the many more questions because yeah, I think maybe in hindsight, this this stream <laughs> was too short uh, because I, I feel we haven't done talking yet. There's so much more I want to ask you, but we might still have an opportunity to do that at some point. Or well, if you I do mean, want to stick around, you're, you're more than welcome I, to, I've got course. another 10 minutes if you <laughs> want, and then I have to make a phone call. But. Okay, excellent. Well, can I then just ask, because I, I think we should we haven't really talked about it yet. You, you were, so you, I just want to clarify, because I saw some people in the chat, um, like you were um, referring to the theory of uh, some very difficult Greek name that I now forgot about the demise of Athens. Uh, no, no, the demise of Sparta versus the rise of Athens, uh, I think, and the war that then broke out. And I think you were referring to it uh, the time we live in now that we have this rise of uh, some superpowers, like for example, China, and definitely you have the relative decline, I would say, of um, the West and, and also the United States. Um, so I was I was wondering, like, are we heading for World War Three, or are, are we actually heading for Cold War Two? So I think it's I think it's a mistake to think that any new war is going to look like the last war. Mm-hmm. I think coming into a new war, but there are new technologies, there are new um, ways of living. And so to suggest it's going to be like the Cold War or the Second World War or the First World War or the Battle of Marathon or whatever mm-hmm. is the wrong way to look at it. I think World War Three, whatever it is, will be its own thing. And it's going to be increasingly focused on hybrid warfare. And I think it's going to have flashpoints every now and then. But I think really it's going to like... My concern is that it ends up being like a perpetual war type situation because the real, the real elephant in the room is the is the financial underlying fragility of the system that we've created and our exposure to the climate costs and and the energy crisis. Right, so this is like a civilization uh, pivot point, and to make it through, we either do that with like some new technological advance that hasn't arrived yet. Or we have to restrict and 
and really control the population in ways that we we haven't had to do for a very long time. And as we try to, you know, create collective solutions for, for things like climate change, that is going to lead to power struggles between those countries that still want to develop and 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 aren't happy to constrain their consumption at this point, right? So mm. whatever whatever way we're looking at it, there is definitely a transition of power going on, I think. Um, whether whether it's clear cut, I don't think it's gonna necessarily be the same thing where, you know, we move from the British Empire to the American Empire to the Chinese Empire. I suspect it's going to be more multipolar mm-hmm. because all the empires have the same problem this time around. There is no new growth without some sort of massive innovation somewhere. Yeah. And um, in that context... And there's massive debt the, everywhere. Massive debt everywhere. And I think in that context, mm-hmm. all these different control, like powers, they benefit from creating a foreign enemy perspective, right? So they can rally their own people by, you know, it's the, I mean, it's cliche, but it's the Orwellian perpetual war where, you know, Oceania is, is, is you know, perpetually, you know, uh, fearful of Eurasia and et cetera. And then, so you can see like China will use the West as the bogeyman and then, uh, Russia will use the West as the bogeyman, and and we will use maybe both Russia and China. I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 not making any, any assumptions, and this is just my my inkling is that there will be this multipolar world. And mm. um, I've forgotten the question now. Oh well, <laughs> Thucydides' yeah. trap. But yeah. So, so it's more. You've, you've it's answered not just it. a Thucydides' trap. It's 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 not just that China is emerging as the new power. It's emerging into a constrained power relationship because mm. it can't it, it, there is this natural limit which is the, the the carbon situation so yeah i think it's going to be um for finance and markets also the challenge is how you how you transition to growth that is increasingly dematerialized i think um but to be honest and I, digital i don't see this um uh, how is carbon really the limit? I wonder because how I see it more is that, um, especially private debt is, is the limit. And like, how is carbon the limit? Because can't economies just grow on? And then, sure, I know that, uh, or likely global warming will will kick in and do horrible things. But isn't that largely outside of the major powers that are creating uh, the the carbon output? If you catch my drift, right? So, so Europe, US, no, I th- I China, going to be think fine. Energy consumption <clears throat> is is. I think energy consumption is intimately connected with growth. I think mm-hmm. if you look at like energy uh, consumption and growth, it, it tracks almost mm-hmm. identically. And so, if there's a constraint to cheap energy and la- lacking an innovation like fusion or something that can give us a, give us the next growth phase, um, then you know the Roman Empire collapsed because of frankly not enough they they never made the innovation leap to 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 using um you know fossil fuels right so so they they, they their empire got too large they couldn't manage it the bureaucracy got out of order at too much control and 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 effectively it had to break off and fragment and become you know the, the makings of the middle ages right so that's the worst case scenario for us is that everything fragments out and we have this collapse of civilization where our energy footprint comes down, but not because we are improving our lifestyle. To the contrary, it's because everyone has to go back to the medi- like medieval times, basically. 
Um, and that's the worst case scenario, right? The best case scenario is that we we find a new tech and we are able to to innovate our way out of it. And and we should be doing everything, in my opinion, to encourage innovation so that we can make that leap. But as it stands, where we are now is in this weird middle ground where there is a, in my opinion, and I'm 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 no I know people will challenge me on this, but there's a false narrative I think out there that the technology is here to take us into net zero. I, do, I, do, I don't agree that the technology is here. I think it's not. And because the technology is here, if the alternative is that we can't continue to mine cheap fossil fuels, then in ed- that means the growth situation. The only way you can correct for it is with, 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 with basically growth being suspended on a global level. That's, that's mm. my take. That's interesting. So I have to say that I, I don't think about it like that, but also, but I have to add to that that energy is my blind spot still a little bit. So I don't. I, it's not not my specialty, and I, I do think that my bias is to make everything um, about money and about monetary. Yeah, but factors. money is energy. I mean, the two are intimately connected. Like everything is ultimately an input of energy. So everything, all all economic activity ultimately derives from some sort of source point of energy, whether it's human energy, but human energy is powered by agriculture. You know, like in the Ukraine crisis right now, a much overlooked um, aspect of it is the nat gas situation, right? And What's the nat the gas situation? That, well, there's a shortage of nat gas and that is entirely our oh. own doing, which has oh. empowered uh-huh. Putin. Gas on the right? net, you mean? Huh? Like, what do you mean with uh, net gas? Like, uh, just gas, basically, for Europe, or well, natural gas. Oh, natural gas. gas. Okay, sorry, I just I, yeah. I was looking uh, for the 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 grid or the net in that. Uh, I was no, no, the okay. natural gas. So okay. basically, uh, we've created a shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, through our net zero policy, because we, you know, my opinion, we've we've run before we can walk, mm-hmm. um, and pushed ahead with policies that have constrained the. You know, for years and years, the interim solution for this problem was that we would transition through nat gas, and nat gas was actually going to be—it's like an ironic behavioral thing where, even though technically it's still a fossil fuel because it's a much less intensive uh, um, expenditure of carbon, it's still mm. a net gain to to basically transition from from oil and coal to nat gas, and you're going to get greater savings from doing that than going like cold turkey to net zero because when you go net zero uh, a you have to spend a lot more fuel actual carbon fuel to create all those like renewable resources in the Mm. first place and secondly the people who can't afford those um, resources will end up using much dirtier and cheaper fuels like wood and coal and that's exactly what's happened in Germany, which is that, like, you know, the, the fact that Germany has now closed its nuclear uh, production and has Crazy. made itself entirely dependent on Russian gas, mm-hmm. ironically, is incredibly, not, like, that was, a, and it wasn't even a blind spot. It was so well flagged. So that, that to me, is like handing over control to Putin. Yeah. I mean, it, so it, that, it, it that was... that emboldened Putin to invade Ukraine, if I can make it concretely. Is, is that sort of what you're saying? Well, yeah, because we, we, we've, we're in a situation where he, he calls the shots because we can't sanction him properly because then we don't get any energy or food. And it translates into food because nat gas is a key impo- component in the production of food and fertilizers. So without nat gas, 
you know, we've already got because of the cost of like this was very well flagged in November, which is why when I went on some news channel in November, I was saying that February would be the moment that everything would come to the fore because it was clear that that would be the time that our gas stocks would be entirely depleted. And at that point, um, there would be that would be peak Putin power because he he has us over Raoul because he can dictate whatever he wants. But also in the interim, gas prices have been so high that farmers have, haven't bought the fertilizer they need because they were hoping prices would go down, yeah. but they haven't come down. So this now looks like that this will lead to like a 5 to 10% yield destruction in farming in Europe this year. Um, they're planting late already and, yeah. and likely to plant even later because of the lack of fertilizer. That makes Ukraine a kingmaker asset because Ukraine is one of the biggest grain producers in the world. Mm-hmm. And any, you know, if 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 you think that, you know, in terms of gas, the balance point is Qatar and the LNG producers who are yeah. now balancing the imbalances. Ukraine provides the imba- the balancing grain assets. So it's like having the SPR of grain if you control Ukraine. And, you know, right. you dictate if Egypt gets gets food or not because through the black sea so much of the grain from ukraine goes to the middle east so we you know putin knows this and 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 i don't think the the implications on food have really been thought through properly this isn't a conspiracy this is no. just practical pragmatic analysis yeah and this story is not in the news much right so so this is why we need the blind spot yeah <laughs> It's one of the stories that I think is like, that's the sort of bigger geopolitical, you know, so easy to go knee jerk, like, oh, you know, you remember even the Gulf War, everyone's just, you know, it's easy to like have a very simplistic take on this, but power, money, capital um, is ultimately the, you know, I'm I'm an ancient historian. That's what I studied at at university. And those are the three things that determine all geopolitics ultimately and i think it's very very um naive to think that there aren't massive sort of uh, political level you know plans being laid to try and like gain access and control over these things yeah i think that makes sense and you have to a certain extent opened my eyes opened my eyes a little bit about this energy issue in the sense that so the, the 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 piece of the puzzle that I didn't see is that what you mentioned about fertilizers for farmers here in Europe, because I did know that uh, like both Russia and Ukraine are massive wheat producers, and what I found is that okay, so so Egypt, like you mentioned, but also I think Indonesia and Vietnam, for a massive are massive importers of wheat from from Russia and the Ukraine, but I didn't. Uh, didn't make the connection to Europe because, you know, I'm from the Netherlands myself, uh, which is also a massive agriculture producer. But basically you are saying that uh, our farmers, if I can say that, uh, now have a fertilizer problem because that was not on my radar. So, okay, so that's super interesting. I will will definitely look into that. (laughs) They have a fertilizer problem. They also have just generally, they're going to have to compete increasingly with international markets for a lot of their input costs. So input, just general inputs amongst which, you know, and then there's other like commodity related things like helium is also a controlling asset um, that, well, an asset that people want to control at the moment because that's got um, shortage issues and helium is a vital component in uh, semiconductors. And And there aren't that many helium. Who has it? So helium can be made, so the connection 
between helium and, and nat gas is that nat gas is used in the helium extraction process. Okay. So de facto, even if Ukraine doesn't like it, gas impacts the helium because without the, it's like fertilizer is a you need the gas to get the fertilizer. So that's that's the connection of helium. Damn. Yeah. You're, you're making me worried. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But uh, the one connection that I did think about that I think is interesting, like um, there's now, at least on YouTube, there's this massive sort of conspiracy um, gut feeling, if you if you will, uh, about sort of the end of the world uh, and sort of the, the crashing of, of most economies. Uh, and that what I do think is interesting is that you mentioned specifically, like very often these gut feelings have a grain of truth to them, but it's just like the information that's actually relevant is not Backed into these theories, but you are coming across as as, as really strongly arguing or, or, or believing in a, a massive regime shift that's that's starting just just now. And, and is that a correct uh, summary? Yeah, I I think there is a sort of massive um, geopolitical change going on at the moment. I think there were there is um, the period of. You know, I'm a historian ultimately, and I I think we all get very complacent about this idea that in you know, the end of history and that things things you know, history always progresses and it only goes up. You know, I'm 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 of the ancient history school of of Polybius. I see things in cycles, and I don't think it's wise to you know as soon as as soon as you think it's going to be one way, it's usually not. So that's how blind spots occur when you get complacent and you become you know. You, you, when the crowd becomes convinced that X is always going to be X, you can be damn sure there's going to be something that pops that bubble um, and no one will have seen it coming. Yeah. And who, by the way, this is some other related question now that I still have you here. Who should I talk about regarding this energy uh, dimension? Because I really want to learn more about this. Do you have some recommendations, or who should maybe the chat read about, or, or myself? Like, who are the? I mean, it really depends. You see, this is again like the energy, like realistic voices on the energy issue are few and far between because of the pressure to conform to the consensus on energy. So, I mean, who who's good on it? Like any practitioner, anyone actually physically trading or dealing in energy, any you know. The, the sad thing is, is that the big sort of commodity traders are so conscious of their PR that they're, you know, that they also have like, like we were talking about journalism, there's a disconnect between what they do and what their philosophy is. And this, this is, you know, this kind of corporate virtue signaling is incredibly damaging for, for the economy because corporations that are supposedly, you know, profit, you know, they're supposed to be profit maximizing in their fields, but they're not profit maximizing because they're doing things for virtuous reasons. But as a result, that creates a, um, a, a gap in the economy, right? So, or it creates a sort of wishful thinking effect where they think, oh, well, you know, as long as we're virtuous enough, then we can manifest, you know, the outcomes that we desire irrespective of what the reality is. And, and re- reality is really quite, you know, you can't, it knocks on the door and goes, hello, <laughs> I'm here, I'm a gas, you know, you, you said you'd have like net zero, it'd be lovely and we'd have wind farms, but actually, look, I'm, I'm the gas deficit and I'm knocking on your door. Ha- people who are upfront about that are few and far between. You know, I, I've i spoken to quite a lot of consultants on it and um, some of them are very high level, very well regarded in the industry. 
and they're scared to talk because they they will be disparaged because it's such an unpopular perspective. I mean, now, thanks to the Russia situation, in some ways, there is a bit, a bit more realism coming into play. And I've heard suddenly a lot of kind of revisionism from from a few people um, in terms of how they feel about the gas and net, net, net zero situation. I, I do see that happening now, but it's few and far between. You know, I think you've got voices like Michael Schellenberger, who has been saying this for years, um, okay. but he was dismissed as a weirdo and a and a and a and a and a, and a conspiracy theorist again. Not a conspiracy, but I mean, he came from the green movement and his basic spiel. I thought he was very convincing, frankly, but he was one of the voices that it was challenging to platform on any pos- you know, any kind of like uh, serious publication because he was saying what people didn't want to hear, which is that renewables are not there yet. We mm. can't do the transition because the technology hasn't arrived yet. And people don't want to hear that, so they shut him down. And it's very, it's very, um, you know, it's very weird. Whereas I want to hear those voices and I want to platform them up so that we can find the solutions to the problems, not just ignore them. Yeah, you're, you're really making me want to platform this person on the Money and Macro channel, Isabella. Well, Michael Schellenberg is great. I did interview him, but like in the end, we didn't run the podcast. Um, so I ended up doing it somewhere else. But he he was great. I, I He's got, you know, I think he's got a column and I think maybe it's Forbes or Fortune. I can't remember. But he's also um, independent and he just, he did the Joe Rogan interview not long ago. So. Ah, okay, yeah. Oh, that's that's a big platform. I'll, I'll definitely look up that uh, that podcast. Then, so I also see a lot of people in the chat uh, sort of going on about uh, nuclear, and and that also ties into to something that I was myself thinking. Like, can't we just build a, a ton of of power plants? Like, I know the political will isn't there, but can't we just do that? Like, build a, a massive amount of of nuclear power plants. And I know it takes a while, but like theoretically. Yeah, we can and we should. And that's basically what Michael Schellenberger is saying. Okay. But there is no political will. To the contrary, there is this weird stigma with nuclear, which is that it's incredibly dangerous and it's not green and therefore we can't do it. When actually, the, But there is so much more evolution in, in, in the technology of, of nuclear and there are micro-nuclear plants and really interesting innovations. And, and yet there is this kind of blanket um, perspective. Michael Schellenberger says it's because it arises from the kind of green lobby being quite anti-nuke and lefty. Mm. And um, so they, they see nukes as sort of like war, like, you know, war hockey and, and very um, neocon. And therefore they don't want, they don't want to be seen um, recommending nukes in any capacity, even in a power generating sense. But like, again, nuclear is at the heart of the Ukraine story. Like if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, the uh, the Ukrainian nationalists, they, they want to get their autonomy um, back by basically redeveloping all their, all their nuclear facilities. And they do have active nuclear facilities in Ukraine already. But they want to really invest in more of them. Now, obviously, Chernobyl is also in, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Which was just under so, siege or captured or something, I, I read. Yes, mm. exactly. So, but Chernobyl, in a weird way, is also the the thing that, like, made nuclear, un, you know, completely not palatable. But if you yeah. look at the grand scheme of things, Chernobyl didn't kill that many people. I'm not saying every life lost is awful, don't get me wrong. No. And there were terrible repercussions for the environment. And, and but, but, but 
in some ways, um, you know, in terms of global tragedies, it wasn't the biggest in the world, but it's become like, it's become the poster child of why you can't do nuclear. Yeah. And the, the the Netflix documentary, you know, when I talked yeah. to um, some of the nuclear specialists, they were very upset with that Netflix thing because they thought it really kind of mischaracterized the threats from nuclear. Was that the, uh, was it a proper documentary or was it like the no, it's the, drama it was series? Like a, uh, Yeah, it was a drama series. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. really good. I watched but it. It, it, was... made, it made me physically sick. So I cannot totally understand how people then, you know, <laughs> get antagonized against nuclear. Yeah, and I right. think it was, according to nuclear experts, I talked to mischaracter mischaracterizing a lot of um, the issues. Yeah, But and then weirdly anyway, enough, I like in the same spirit, Fukushima is is even weirder, right? Like the the that was a super limited disaster, and it made Germany just switch off all of its power plants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think Fukushima, yeah. I mean, mm. Fukushima was a, it was a tragedy, but I think it also it weirdly like ended up being quite stimulative for the uh, Japanese economy, if I recall as well. So in terms of growth, um, mm. after the tragedy, it helped to, um, to, I think there was a bit of a, like, in, obviously Japan's had a massive long-term issue with growth, but mm. there was, um, there was a sort of post Fukushima boost mm. uh, that have had to do with the rebuilding uh, because of the tsunami damage more more than the, the power plant yeah exactly mm. i mean but it's yeah it's 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 all kind of connected in the sense of uh, the tsunami and the fukushima that, that era anyway but yeah i think i think you're right i think fukushima was i remember when it happened like everyone was so fearful that it would travel and and i'm not trying to downplay nuclear risks they're obviously there but i think The, most of the power plants we have are so old nowadays that it. Pay Jonathan Ford did an excellent piece in the FT about the, the challenges of build, building a nuclear plant and how you know it takes 10 to 15 years to build a proper one and to decommission them as well it takes yeah. even longer sometimes. So they don't do they ever really get decommissioned? Like the, obviously the nuclear waste issue is 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 a big problem, but. But yeah, that's my. I'm, I'm witchering, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> yeah, and and this is this. Maybe I could just round it off by by just saying that this this brings me to the only problem that I do have with it. So I, I just recently moved to Belgium, and here we have I think like three major nuclear power plants, but they they're not properly maintaining them. They keep shutting off, uh, and they're not building new ones, but they're also keeping these open. Uh, and and this is the only thing that I do find difficult about this debate because then you know I, I sort of side with the greens on this issue sometimes because like not maintaining one and keeping it open is 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 also not good. I just build new ones. Yeah, but I think I think um, yeah, you've got you've obviously got to you've got to maintain them. I I don't know enough about I, I can't really comment because I don't know mm. about it. But it strikes me as uh, as part of the kind of greater you know move away from nukes and coal and 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 a lot of these assets have become unloved because of this false narrative in my opinion that the new renewable technology is now capable of taking over and i i'm just not convinced it is but based on based on the statistics based on the costs based on the actual recycling of the renewables themselves, um, just in terms of the economics, in terms of the land use, the battery power, the intermittency issue. These are all massive constraints. They work 
renewables great work work really well in an isolated capacity like if you're like a little village in the middle of Africa and you get a nice solar panel it's great it works it's brilliant but that is completely different to powering like a, a massive urban you know environment where you need constant um, reliable and accessible energy and it, you, you don't have the space necessarily for the solar panels so you need to trans the other issue with renewables is also the cost of transmission, which hasn't been thought through properly either. So, but I'm I'm, I'm generalizing massively, and I mm, I, I sure. shouldn't talk about things without researching them. I mean, I have researched it, but I don't have I haven't recently looked at it, so I don't want to. Yeah, no, but I think any the, the people who watch this stream uh, are, are are rather intelligent. Uh, after all, they subscribe to the Money Micro channel, but uh, so I think they, they can see through that. Uh, that I, I wouldn't worry about that. Thank you so much, Isabella. You, no problem. You know you missed your call, right? You, <laughs> no, I'm going to go. I've just I've delayed it, but I'm going to. I have to do it now. So um, okay, yeah. All right. Thanks Thank so you. much for joining me, and please, uh, people, follow Isabella on Twitter and also the Blind Spot, and and have a look at our YouTube channel and help her reach a thousand subscribers. Because I really think that in independent media, we need more. Critical voices, but not necessarily cons only conspiracy voices. Brilliant. Thank I you very much. Sense. Thanks so much. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Cheers. What have I missed? Did you enjoy this conversation? Uh, no, not physically. That, that was the, um, <clears throat> the theory about Athens and Sparta. But Isabella also mentioned a, an expert on, on the energy field that wasn't necessarily taken seriously. Oh, Noah, do I still send by the video on sanctions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the sanctions, I've the more I read about it, um, the more they confirmed that they were rather weak in the sense that they just completely accepted or exempted, ex exempted the, 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 the agricultural and energy sectors, which is very uh, non-surprising in light of this conversation that I just had with Isabella. But the, the market reaction was stronger than uh, I maybe would have expected. But, you know, that could also be an overcorrection. Also, yeah, just always keep in mind that if you move into prediction of the future in any way, you might get it right, but you still get it wrong, if you know what I mean. Like, you, you might say, okay, this is the most, the most likely event, but, you know, like you might say, okay, the coin flip will land head because it's rigged to land on head 80% of the time, and it might still just land on tail, right? Okay, did I miss some other questions? So Antoine, I saw you You mentioned that, uh, that question from Patreon. I didn't ask her about how to get into journalism. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't see the opening for it in, uh, in the conversation we had. I did ask her, uh, that was another question somebody mentioned on Patreon, about the media landscape and how she sees that. I found it especially interesting, um, you know, that I, I just wanted to tease out a little bit more, sort of like which, which people are... are <laughs> with which ideology are in which newspaper. And, but I do understand that she, she was hesitant to talk about that um, a little bit, given that it's like your previous employer, right? But I do, I do think there's, there's just always so much there to talk to someone who's actually in that specific field, right? So and are there any other questions? Because uh, otherwise I will head to dinner. So most, reading back, most of it is uh, you all discussing among each other, right? The almost in instinctively journalistic cautiousness is very different. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you definitely notice that I, I have less of that, right? I'm not a trained journalist. So maybe I will get in trouble with that at some point. But uh, let's see.
Ah, Michael Schellen, Michael Schellenberger. Yeah, this is the name I will look up. I will look up that podcast. Energy is my blind spot. Maybe I should look more into it. Um, okay. Thank you all so much for attending this uh, this stream. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if there are no further questions, I will head to dinner. I'm working on another Russia video, Russia economy video, but it's it's a very difficult story. My lighting was better when there was two of me on stream. Ah, oh, that's interesting. I'm actually looking at building a building, uh, a studio. So I might have a little bit of a change of scenery rather soon. So on Monday, someone's coming to help me out with that. Yeah, just to get a little bit more professional lighting and all of that, because here I'm just in my living room. Uh, and then you have the problem with light during the day. I think that's why it is. So um, we started when it was light and now it's dark outside. And that made my lighting a little bit worse, I think. Anyhow, uh, thank you all for joining. Take care. More videos welcome. More live streams. I need to inter interview some more people about the massive change uh, we might see in the global economy.